guests, we are thrilled that you're here. Um, the only request I have for you uh, is to just enjoy the service and stop by our welcome desk on the way out so we can uh, show our appreciation for you coming and trying something new. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out on this this morning. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for the chance that we get to open your word and study it. Uh, we're so incredibly grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather uh, as your church. We, we, we do not take that for granted, Lord, and we are so uh, thankful for the promise in your word that when two or three gather in your name, you're, you're right there with them. And so we know, God, that you're here this morning. We know that you had a huge hand in bringing each and every person here today. And so we ask that, um, that you would just cash that in now, Lord, that you would speak, that you would teach, that you would encourage, you would convict, that you would move as you see fit to move in each of our lives, and that you would get the glory from all this. And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, get them open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in a seat back in front of you. I think we're on page 1053 of that. Uh, but if not, I'm within a page or two. And I want you to be able to follow along with what we're talking about um, this morning. Uh, I've come to realize that I have an unhealthy, toxic relationship in my life. And it's with sports. Right? Because sports are consistently, repeatedly bad to me, and I just keep crawling back. Every single major injury I've had in my life has been by playing sports. Every season of fanhood where a team that I've declared allegiance to that has gone really well, there's 20 others that have gone really bad. For instance, I stand before you today with the football team, the Indianapolis Colts, who have as many wins in the NFL season as I do right now. Okay? Uh, my, my beloved allegiance to the Chicago Cubs, in one in just a handful of hours, they sent away my three favorite players. Instead of signing them to stay on the Cubs, traded them all the way to other teams. It just broke my heart. Like, I stand before you a broken sports fan, okay? But when I have times like that, instead of getting wise and leaving sports behind, I just try to think back to the good times, right? So this week I was thinking about things that neat, really neat sporting events that I got to see actually in person, not on television, but in person. And I recalled uh, the year that Peyton Manning uh, set the record for the most number of touchdown passes. Uh, I was in the building, in the RCA Dome, when he threw the touchdown pass that tied the record. I recall uh, the only time that the Cubs and Cardinals in their entire history have ever faced off in the playoffs was back in 2015, and I went into the belly of the beast, right, into St. Louis, and was surrounded by 40,000 Cardinals fans as the Cubs beat them, and I still remember that fondly, right? But the most unique event I've ever been to, as far as sporting events, was in Indianapolis, and it was something called the Hardwood Classic, and it was a college basketball game between Purdue and Louisville. And it was designed to be between Purdue and Louisville because Purdue's campus is an hour and a half away from the stadium, and Louisville's campus is two hours away from the stadium. And so they arranged this event to happen where they sold half the tickets on one side of the stadium to Louisville fans and half the tickets on the other side of the stadium to Purdue fans. And so when you walked into Conceco Fieldhouse and you looked to your left, it was a sea of red. Right, all Louisville fans were there, ready to go, and they're decked out in red. If you look to the right, it was a sea of black and gold because all the Purdue fans were there. And what made it unique was no matter what happened in the game, right, no matter what just occurred, half the stadium was really pumped about it. And so it was the loudest game I've ever been to. And I remember it hit me while I was watching it. At some point, it dawned on me, this entire stadium is watching the exact same game. They're watching the exact same play, but 50% of them are reacting one way, and 50% of them are reacting in the complete opposite way. And what made the difference had nothing to do with what was going on in the court. What made the difference was a predetermined posture that they brought into that experience. If you were wearing red, 
right? And you were rooting for Louisville. You decided ahead of time that you wanted to see Louisville win that game. And that shaped how you responded to what you saw. If you're wearing gold and black and rooting for Purdue, you decided ahead of time that you're going to do that. And it shaped your response to the very same thing. And this phenomenon isn't just in sports, right? Spend five minutes watching MSNBC and then five minutes watching Fox News the next time there's an election or, well, really anything happens, right? And you'll see a huge difference in response. Quite possibly the starkest contrast in this was with Jesus. Because we're told repeatedly in the Gospels that, that uh, large crowds came to Jesus. Large crowds followed him, listened to him. And in this crowd would be multitudes of people, including those who were sick, those who were confused, those who had lost their way, those who needed hope, those who had felt left behind by the religious system. But also in the crowds were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and the religious leaders of the day, and everybody there would all hear the same teaching. They would all see the same miracles. They would all be witnesses to the same events and the same Jesus, and yet their reactions could not have been more different. The crowds responded with joy and wonder and amazement, even a healthy sense of fear. The religious leaders responded with skepticism and jealousy and critique and hatred. And this divide continued on. It didn't end with them. We have been studying this letter, 1 Timothy, for the last several months here at FBN, going verse by verse through it. And in this letter, just to remind you, Paul is writing to Timothy because he's left him in place at Ephesus because of something that false teachers have done. And so just, if you know the historical timeline, uh, Paul helped establish the Ephesians church and, and get it rooted and built up. And then he left and went on to plant other churches. And, and in the meantime, some false teachers came in and really messed up the theology, really messed up the doctrine, made a mess of the church. And to when Paul, when he came back to visit, he realized what, what shambles this church was in. And so he left Timothy there and said, you gotta, you gotta clean up this mess. And so now he's writing Timothy a letter. It's like, here's how you deal with these false teachers. Here how you, here's how you clean up the mess they made. And so what has happened is, historically, basically, Timothy and these teachers were operating in the same role. False teachers were kind of the teaching shepherd of, of Ephesus. Now Timothy is. They had the same role, but Timothy is trying to go about it the right way. The false teachers went about it all the wrong way. And what it came down to was posture. It came down to posture. And it still does. From the Pharisees to the false teachers to us today, from the crowds to Timothy to us today, the determining factor is our posture before the Lord. How they saw God, how they saw themselves, defined and determined the posture they took before God. How we see God and how we see ourselves determines the same. And you need to know, if you have the right posture before God, he will continue to shower you with more and more and more grace, none of which you deserve. And if you have the wrong posture before the Lord, this will result in nothing from him. You only receive from God that which you deserve, and you don't want that. Because the natural consequences and byproducts of your sin and choices are not pleasant. And so if our posture before the Lord matters this much, and it does, we need to clearly understand the difference that's at play here, and then we need to get on the right side of that line. And so I'm going to invite Seth Wyram up to read today's passage for you. He's going to read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Seth. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words, 
For the, uh, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived from the truth. Uh, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, thank you, Seth. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open right there to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That is where we're going to focus our attention and time today. Any supporting scriptures, we'll throw up on the screens for you so you can keep your Bibles there. Just as a reminder, again, this section as one of many in this letter, where Paul is instructing Timothy on the false teachers, on the havoc they've caused, on the mess they've left behind, and how to move forward. And so verses 3 through 5, Adam preached those for you last week. Uh, Paul is writing about the ramifications of this false teaching and their leadership, and it's not pretty. There wasn't a lot of good left in their wake. Verse 6, which I'm going to focus on today, I'm calling a contrast bridge. I don't know if that's actually a term. If it's not, I made it up, and you're going to have to deal with it, okay? But it's a contrast bridge, right? It's a truth that will permit Timothy to operate entirely different than how the false teachers operated before him. Okay, and then in verses 7 through 10, which we'll get to next week, it will expound, support on, and drive home what he says in verse 6. And so really, I'm pointing all this out to tell you that verse 6, I believe, is the linchpin of this section, that everything turns on it. And so we need to read it again to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. Verse 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I know that's not a long verse, okay? But the truth is powerful. And I think in the context of this letter that we've been going through, we'll see that it's even more powerful. And it's worthy of us taking a closer look this morning. Because Paul mentions a concept in that verse that is very important to him as he wrote this letter to Timothy. And it's the concept of godliness, okay? Uh, The Greek word that we translate into the English word godliness is eusebia, and it's used 15 times in the New Testament. So there are 15 different instances that that word is used in the New Testament. Eight of them, more than half, happen in 1 Timothy, which is not a long book, by the way. So this is clearly a theme that Paul is repeating over and over and over again to Timothy. And I believe the reason for that becomes evident as you study this letter, Because Timothy's understanding of what godliness is would become very crucial. And the false teacher's understanding of godliness was completely off target. And so what you had at this church at Ephesus was uh, in operation two different views of godliness, two different definitions of godliness. One was backwards and wrong and creating all kinds of problems, and one was right. And the difference, again, came down to posture. And so, obviously, here at FBM, we want to get it right, right? So we're going to get this right. We need to know and understand and apply this truth that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we need to know what godliness is. If there are two different definitions, we need to know what they are and get on the right side. Right? And so I want to break down the wrong one first. Okay? And I'm calling it the backwards view of godliness because it goes about it all the wrong way. And this backwards view of godliness wasn't brand new to Ephesus. This isn't a problem that Timothy's the first one ever to deal with it. It was the same problem that Jesus faced when he was dealing with the Pharisees. And so there are certain characteristics of a backwards view of godliness I want to lay out before you so you can understand it. And the first is this, that a backwards view of godliness is defined by external markers and characteristics. There's a chapter in Matthew, Matthew 23, where Jesus takes full aim at the religious leaders of his day and, and, and a scathing takedown, especially for Christ. He goes point by point by point by point on everything they're getting wrong. And we're going to refer to it several times today because, like I mentioned, the false teachers that Timothy is dealing with were following the exact same playbook those guys were. And so in Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus talking about the religious leaders of his day. says this, that they do everything to be seen by others. 
They enlarged their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels. Okay, now the phylacteries were these leather boxes that you'd wear like a necklace around your neck that contains parchment in them that had scriptures written on them. The tassels, we get, we get those from Numbers 15, where Moses described them as attaching the four corners of, of a Jewish man's garment in obedience. And so I want you to notice in Matthew 23 that Jesus isn't critiquing the observance of either of these things. He doesn't have a problem with them carrying scriptures around their neck. He doesn't have a problem with them putting tassels on. What bothers Jesus is their motivation for doing so. They were making these things bigger, more prominent, longer for the purpose of appealing to other people, of appearing more holy to other people. It's just one example among many. This pattern continued among the false teachers in in Timothy. Look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy and verse 3. This is another section that Paul, we've already taught on this, but Paul was teaching him about these false teachers. And he says this, chapter 4, verse 3, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, there is one difference I want to point out for you in that, all right? The difference between what we saw in 1 Timothy 4 and what we saw in Matthew 23 is that Paul is critiquing what they're observing, right? Jesus didn't have a problem with the observance in Matthew 23. He just had a problem with how they were doing it. Paul has a problem with the observance in 1 Timothy 4 because marriage is not meant to be forbidden. And foods that are to be received with gratitude are not meant to be forbidden. But then focus, I want you to notice the focus again is always on the external, Because people can see if I'm eating this food or not eating this food. People can see if I'm publicly supporting marriage or forbidding marriage. And it's all to put on this outward appearance of godliness to make you impressed with me. It's a backwards view of godliness. Second thing that comes with this is a hyper focus on things of lesser importance. Right? If you have 1 Timothy open, let's look at some earlier passages. Chapter 1 and verse 4. Another section where he's warning Timothy about these guys. And he says this. I'm going to start a little bit up in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now look back at chapter 6. Okay, in verse 4, one of the verses Seth read for us says this, that he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. So we need to explain this one a little bit, but this is, this is part of the playbook, Okay. Because the strategy in this backwards view of godliness is to bring a hyper-intense focus on matters that ultimately are of little consequence. And the motivation for doing so is that you can posture yourself as an expert, right? If you were an expert in this one sort of minute matter, the assumption would be made that you're an expert in what everything that is important. But sadly, what plays out is the opposite is almost always true. Right, Paul mentions in chapter 1 that these people wanted to be teachers of the law and knew nothing about it. In verse 4 and 5 of here in chapter 6, they're conceited and understand nothing. Their minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Here's how Jesus described the religious leaders of his day. He said, blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Do you see the difference? Jesus is referring there to their hyper-focus, this intense focus on some of the details of the Sabbath law and ceremonial aspects of the law and the rule-keeping, but they ignored the most important aspects of God's law, which were justice and mercy and faithfulness and humility and worship. And so he likened it to going out of your way to, to strain out a gnat, to not swallow it in your soup, to be unclean, while choking down a camel at the same time. This hyper-intense focus on things that don't matter as much while missing the bigger and more important picture. And sadly, the irony never seemed to land on them. 
And lastly, the heart behind the backwards view of godliness is the backwards posture. It's a belief that you can put God in your debt. This is the driving force behind all of it and the most dangerous aspect of all of it. It's the idea that God would ever owe you anything. You see, in their way of thinking, they were living godly lives. They checked off all the boxes. They met all the external marcos. They intensely followed rules. And so now God owed them. He owed them his favor. He owed them his provision. He owed them his blessings. They better have a good life because of their godliness, which backwards as it was, they believed it was incumbent upon God to bless them for their obedience. And here's the difference in that. In that mindset, godliness is a means to an end. It's not the goal. It's a box that you have to check in order to get what you really want. Now, for the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the goal was privilege and prestige and authority. That's what they really wanted. Jesus called this out in Matthew 23. He says they love the place of honor at banquets. They love the front seats in the synagogue. They, they love greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by people. That was, that was what they actually wanted. That's what they served in those roles for, to fill that bucket. These false teachers at Ephesus, it was material. Look again at the end of verse 5. It says, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. They, they literally believed that this external appear of godliness would get them more money and more riches and more stuff. That was their goal. It wasn't to be closer to Christ. It wasn't to emulate him. It was to just get more stuff. Now, this backwards view of godliness has some really grave consequences. More probably can be listed, but there's three I want to point out this morning. Three destructive ramifications of this. And the first is that it leads to conceit, it leads to callousness, and it leads to pride. We see this in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul says in verse 4 that he is conceited and understands nothing. He said this is literally happening already in your, in your place. We see it in the Gospels. There are many times in the Gospels we read about uh, the crowds being in awe. What Jesus often left in his wake was amazement and wonder and even a healthy sense of fear. But it was never that way with the religious leaders. I mean, think about it. The Messiah was in their midst. The Son of God was right there among them. The creator of the universe took on flesh and was with them. They were hearing teaching unlike anyone had ever heard before. They were seeing miracles that no one had ever seen before. And it didn't even move them at all. Like they barely even saw it. They were never affected. They were never moved. They were never broken. They were never impacted. And you know why? Because they didn't need a hero. They were already their own hero. They didn't need a savior because they didn't need saving. They did, their righteousness and their godliness was all they needed in their minds. And so it led in this place of callousness to the movement of the Lord and pride and ego. Because the backwards view of godliness always does. The second ramification of it is there's a lot of time spent on very little fruit. Back in chapter one, Paul warned Timothy that these false teachers want to talk about empty speculations, he calls it, and have all these fruitless discussions. And if you don't think this is happening today, go read a theological debate on Twitter or YouTube comment section. Actually, you know what? Don't. Life's too short. Just don't do it, okay? But I was involved. I mean, I, I, this, I'm passionate about this idea because this is my story. This is what the Lord has brought me out of. And I was involved in a conversation about music once. And the, and the idea, the topic was that we should ban all music for Christians that we could define as worldly. But then you had to do what? You had to define what was worldly. And it turned out it didn't matter what the message of the song was at all. Right? Because then you're going through a list of instruments. This instrument is good and godly. A piano and organ, you can have that. But drums and guitar, no, those are worldly need to go. 
And that led to a conversation about the style of music, which was then led to a conversation of beat and rhythm. It was suggested that if it makes you want to dance, then it's worldly and you've got to ban it. Well, then that led to the question of, well, then what is dancing? Is this toe-tapping dancing? Or I need to actually get a little hip action involved, right? And, and, and it just went on and on and on. And somebody in that room should have screamed, what in the world are we doing? Like, what are we doing? There's, there's actually real issues at stake. There are people who need the gospel. There's sin in the roots of my heart. There's active, ongoing spiritual warfare. Time isn't limitless. What in the world are we doing? And not only that, all this hyper-focused debate and effort result in zero transformation. Because as Adam told us brilliantly last week, you cannot bypass God and get to godliness. You can't do it. Everything in the backwards view of godliness requires effort, requires a dis- visibility, requires a display of piousness, and results in zero heart change. Colossians chapter 2, Paul is writing about a very similar false teaching that had taken place in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. You see that? It promotes piousness. Look at me. Look at how obedient and observant I am. Then what does Paul say? They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They don't change the heart. They don't transform a life. The third damaging ramification of the backwards view of godliness is that it does not invite the movement and blessing of the Lord. Mark chapter 2, Jesus calls Levi to be his disciple. Levi was a tax collector who was among the most hated groups of that day. By the way, if you hate a group long enough, they're not going to want to do much with you. And so the tax collectors often had little to do with God because the people who were supposedly representing him had little to do with them. But Levi's life has been changed. He's met the Messiah. He's met Jesus. And he wants all of his friends to know this newfound hope that he has. And so he hosts a banquet at his house and he invites all his irreligious friends, all those sinners that had nothing to do with the religion before. And then he brings Jesus and his disciples there and hopes that they intermingle and they can find the hope that he found. It's a brilliant idea. And immediately the Pharisees had a problem with it. Mark chapter 2, when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating, he being Jesus, was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. By the way, if he stopped right there, that would have been a really powerful answer. But he didn't stop there. He kept going. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot in that answer that, 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 that is awesome, right? And, and if we had time, we could unpack all of it this morning. But what, there, what exists in that answer by Jesus is tremendous hope for all of us sinners who have strayed from God. You need to know that Jesus came for you to save you. But there's a very clear, dangerous warning for the Pharisees. And anyone with a backwards view of God is this. That if you don't see yourself as sick, if you see yourself as righteous apart from Jesus, then he didn't come for you. If you're a sufficient enough God without him, Jesus has nothing to offer you. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that he can't. There's no limit to what he could do for you. But the key to unlocking the grace of God in your life is recognizing that it is grace and therefore undeserved. Seeing God's grace as something you need is a prerequisite to receiving it. James 4 says this, he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. I don't want you just to read that verse and jump over. I need you to know how scary that line is, that God resists the proud. Because this, the state of the human condition is this, that we are sinners at our core. We're not sinners because we've sinned. We sin because we're sinners. It's, it's who we are at our core. And we deserve nothing from God apart from his just wrath for our sins. And so apart from God's saving grace, we're going to die in our sins and spend an eternity in hell. And the only one who can do anything about that, the only one who can save us from that fate is God himself. And so can you imagine anything more destructive and anything more harmful than having a posture before God that causes him to resist you, the only one who can save you? We must avoid this at all costs. We must reject the backwards view of godliness and embrace what biblical godliness is. And so we need to ask, what is the biblical definition of godliness? Well, in the biblical definition of godliness, the focus is always internal, not external. Now, godliness should not be a, a hard concept for us logically. It's in the name. Godliness is, simply means to be like God. And we need to understand that there are aspects of God that we have no chance of mimicking. Right? His omniscience, his omnipresence, his endless wisdom, unbound knowledge, unchecked power and authority. Those are not available to us. Okay? So where we're called to resemble God most is internally. It's in our hearts, it's in our character, it's in our mindsets, and it's in our attitudes and our purity. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, that we are to put on the new self the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. That verse tells us that the new self, right, the one given to us as new creations in Jesus is created to look like God, is created to be like God, specifically in the areas of righteousness and purity of truth, which means that godliness starts within. It means that it matters why I do things so much more than what I do. It means that we cannot check off a list of externals and think that we are godly, but that we must be pursuing God's grace more and more and more to transform our hearts, to transform our minds, to transform our characters and our attitudes to resemble his, which is much harder. It's so much harder work than the backwards view of godliness. But it invites the Lord's power into our lives and we need it. Secondly, the biblical view of godliness is not a means to an end. It is the prize. Biblical godliness is never to be used to get something better. A biblical godliness removes the sinful barriers in my life that keep me from deep, intimate fellowship with God. And that is the something better. To know God, to know Jesus, to know his word, to be led by his spirit. This is the prize, don't you get it? This is the abundant life that's been offered to you in Jesus Christ. It should never be seen as a means to a lesser price because nothing is greater, nothing is more fulfilling, nothing is more in line with who we've been created to be than to have an intimate relationship with the God who created us. And thirdly, biblical, the biblical view of godliness comes with a posture of contentment. That's why Paul writes in verse 6 that godliness with contentment, they go together. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't you see how polar opposite that is of believing that you can put God in your debt? Of just being content before him? You see, the right posture before God is this, that you owe him a tremendous debt. And if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, he paid it for you in full by his blood on the cross. You've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted as God's child. You've been given his spirit and his word and his church, and you have been given the guarantee of eternal life. What else would you ever need than that? Honestly, what else would you ever need than that? And so I, I, don't, 
I don't want to burst your bubble this morning, but you need to know this to have the right mindset. God is not impressed with you. He's not. God is not impressed with you. He's not blessed by you. He's never in a position of debt towards you. He never looks at anything you do and be like, wow, I couldn't have done that. I'm really glad Brett's down there. There's nothing you have that he doesn't have. There's nothing you've done that he needed you to do. Everything that he has, you don't have, and everything you need, he has. And you need to know that, not to beat yourself up, but to understand how much more amazing his grace is to us. It makes what he's done for us in Jesus Christ that much more remarkable. Because the Bible says of me this morning, having been saved by Jesus Christ, that in John 1, I am told that I'm God's child. In John 15, I'm told I'm a friend of Jesus. In Romans 5, I'm told that I've been justified. In Ephesians 2, I have been saved by grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, I'm united with the Lord. In Colossians 1, I am redeemed and forgiven. In Colossians 2, I am, I am complete in Christ. In Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for me, that I'm free of any charge against me, and nothing can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. Are you kidding me? I don't deserve any of that. And neither does any of you. And so if he never answers another prayer, if he never gives me another blessing, if he never once again does anything I want him to do, if I sink into poverty and illness and despair and grief, I am still getting a tremendous deal from him. And he would still be worthy of all my praise and yes, all of my contentment. Listen, here in a minute, we're gonna go to the communion table as a church. And it'll be a great time uh, this morning to reflect on everything that God has done for you in Christ Jesus and take inventory of some really important things. But as we do, there are two questions I want to leave you with this morning. Two questions that I want you to ponder, two questions I want you to wrestle with and ask God this morning. And the first is this, what is my posture towards God and others? I want you to know, part of the Pharisees' problem was their posture towards others. They saw themselves as the expert. They saw themselves as the leader, teacher, corrector, and answer at all times and in every situation. And you know what this does? This makes you a terrible listener and stunts all kinds of personal development. And so I'm wondering this morning, is there anywhere in your life where you see yourself in a place or posture of submission? Is there anywhere in your life you see yourself in a place or posture of learning or receiving? Or do you always see yourself as the one with the answer? Do you always see yourself as the expert and dispenser of advice? Because without a place of consistent submission, without a place of consistent listening and humility, you are leading yourselves towards trouble, I guarantee you. Secondly, what is your posture before God? I cannot, this morning, I cannot overstate the importance of this. Your posture towards the Lord determines his posture towards you. And if you don't believe me, the scriptures back this up. Psalm 51, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. That, that phrase, you will not despise, in the Hebrew also means you cannot resist. That's the scriptures telling you that if you have a broken and humble heart before God, he cannot resist you. He will move to you, towards you, and shower you with grace every time because he cannot resist your humility. He cannot resist your brokenness. Counter that with James 4, that God resists the proud. He freely resists them. Right? The question is, is your pursuit of God, 
Is your pursuit of his word bringing you to a healthy posture before him? Because one of the tricks the enemy uses is, is to use our good intentions for bad. The longer we're a Christian, right, the more clarity we get in our theology, the more knowledge we have of his word, we have this increasing temptation to fall into backwards godliness where we see ourselves as superior to others and, and we carry ourselves as if God is getting a good deal out of us. This cannot be allowed. This cannot be tolerated. This cannot be permitted in your life because the follower of Jesus who rightly understands this word will have a burning heart, not a big head. Secondly, am I content or covetous before the Lord? And here's, here's what I mean by that question. Does your view of God, does your enthusiasm for serving him, does your fervency for praise, does it rise and fall based on the circumstances of your life? Is your view of the goodness of God ebb and flow based on how he's answering your most recent prayers? Because if that's the case, then you see God as more of a genie than a God. And I'm not going to say this morning that your life isn't really difficult. I know it is. I'm not going to act like you all fell out of the lucky and blessed tree and hit every branch on the way down. I know the struggles are real. I know that suffering is real. I know that grief is real. But if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, the Lord has been wonderfully, amazingly, and unspeakably good to you. And we should not come to him with an indignant expectation that he do what we ask, agree to our plans, and fulfill all our desires. Instead, we should recognize that no one has been better to us than him. And in Jesus, he's given us all that we would ever need. And so our approach to God, good times and bad, needs to be rooted in contentment. For the Lord is our shepherd and we lack nothing. As we go to the table together this morning, we ask God what posture that we've been taking towards him in recent days. And if there's anything that we need to repent of, church, let us rush to do so this morning. Let, us, let him see our brokenness. Let him see our contriteness. Let him see our humility. And he will not be able to resist us. And let us as the church of Jesus at Epion be truly content as we dine with our Savior this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that your word lays before us this undeniable truth that godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, help us to see it as just that. It's the great gain. As the, as, as the prize that we should be pursuing in this life. Not as a means to get something lesser. Not as a means to get something that we want more. But as the truest gain. To, to resemble you. To be like you. To fellowship with you. To know you. To bring glory to you. It's the great gain of our life. And so God however it is around this room that we've stepped into this backwards view of godliness, however it is that we have believed that somehow you're getting a good deal out of us, that somehow you owe us now because of the obedience we've displayed to you. Lord, would we repent of those mindsets before they become even more destructive? God, for those of us who've treated you like a genie more than a God, who, who, who are harboring bitterness towards you because you aren't doing what we wanted you to do, Lord, help us to see the fallacy in those ways and understand that you've been nothing but good to us. And Lord, for anybody in this room who is yet to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, who stands uh, with their, the full sin and wrath of God waiting for them this morning, 
Would they turn to you for salvation? Would they turn to you for forgiveness? Would you grant them your freedom, grace, and eternal life today? We ask that you do this for your glory and for your sake. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'm going to invite Mike Hogan, one of our elders up. He's going to lead us in a time of communion now. Good morning. Of all the different things I'm asked to do as an elder, this one's the heaviest. Uh, it's not because I have to stand up in front of this group.